forward with kingdom things. Amen. And I want to remind you that tonight's passage of Scripture should be a tremendous encouragement to you. One of the things that is most beautiful about some of the prophetic books is the absolute validation that the Word of God came from a source other than mankind. That there is a God in heaven who governs the affairs of man and that he has not uh, and will not and will never uh, become less than God and that he does have things in view. And he, through his unbelievable power, uh, is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And so tonight as we turn our attention to Daniel chapter 8, uh, this is the chapter where there is a full switch. Uh, this entire chapter from here on to the end of the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew. Uh, Daniel happens to be one of the books that was found in its entirety in multiple copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And a couple of those copies were dated in excess of 212 B.C. And just so you know, radiocarbon dating is extremely accurate uh, underneath about 5,000 years or so. And so uh, in that time range, it can be quite accurate. And so organic material uh, can be dated very accurately. And so we have a copy of the book of Daniel that when we get to the, the middle of this chapter, the events that are being described, even with the actual copy of Daniel that we have, even though the book was written several hundred years earlier, the first copy of it or the events of it, uh, we actually have a copy of the book of Daniel that predate the actual events that are going to be mentioned here uh, in this chapter. And so it is another one of those marvelous pieces of, of uh, the biblical puzzle that when you look at it, you're going, who could have written that? Because this is also another one of those wonderful chapters that does us the great uh, favor of interpreting itself by the time we get to verse 20. We're actually told what's being said in the first few verses. And so uh, it gives us this tremendous picture that God not only foreordained these world empires, which, by the way, no longer exist. And so uh, God does have a time and a purpose and a season for everything under heaven, including empires, kings and kingdoms and and uh, even democracies. And so uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful chapter that we find ourselves in, uh, extremely historical. And it gives us some background information uh, that will also be prophetic in nature because it points towards a future time. And whenever you have these issues of typology, which we're going to see in this particular chapter, and you look at these things and you go, wow, that looks a whole lot like, uh, if you remember, there was one in the last chapter, like the Son of Man. Well, that one who was like the Son of Man, that was very accurate in God's uh, inspired word for him to say like because he was not yet the son of man even though Christ existed in the heavenlies he had not yet been, been incarnated and so he was not the son of man until he came to earth and became Emmanuel who dwelt with us and so these wonderful pieces these tidbits these nuggets uh, that don't exist in any other kind of literature and so uh, gives us great great con beautiful uh, validation that God's word came from some other source other than the hand of man and the mind of man. And so 
Let's pray. We'll ask God to bless our nation. We'll pray for the time that we'll spend in God's word tonight. Father, uh, we come, Lord, and, and though uh, we, most of us here in this room, had, had desired for things to turn out differently uh, last night in our presidential election, Lord, we now want to turn our attention uh, to do what your word plainly declares we must, that we are to pray for those who govern over us. And so, Lord, we lift up President Obama to you, and we uh, ask for your hand of mercy to be upon him. We pray that his faith, that nugget of it that's there, would grow. We pray that uh, some of these views that he have, that has that are contrary to your word would change. Uh, we ask you to reach into his heart. We pray for his family. Lord, we ask you to bless them. And Lord, we pray that you would turn them unto you. Lord, we, we pray that uh, their, their faith would be strengthened. And, and Lord, we uh, ask that you be kind to our country. Lord, we ask that you be merciful to our country. We pray that in spite of what it looks like, Lord, that those who are called by your name would be in prayer and that you would hear from heaven and that you'd turn your attention to the cries of your people. And so, Lord, we just cry out to you. Uh, we know that in many ways we're going the wrong direction, but we believe you can change those directions. And so we ask you to do that. Uh, we pray that, God, you would anoint uh, this nation once again to, to be that, that country that stands for you. And so, Lord, do make the changes that need to occur. We pray tonight as we study your word uh, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds and our ears, Lord, that you'd quiet the, the noises of the day, the things that have gone on and occurred, that we might be able to hear from heaven uh, what is your good and your perfect will for us as your children. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to take probably the first 14 verses or so tonight. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so now again remember that we're going backwards in time. We've already been uh, up to a point in time that's about 12 years later than this, so we're going backwards somewhat in time. Uh, this, is, this is a prophetic vision uh, that occurred during Daniel's life. Uh, during the reign of King Belshazzar. And so this vision appeared to me, uh, Daniel. And so this would be going back uh, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, would have been about 551 B.C. It would have been 12 years before the fall of Babylon. And so Daniel would have been about 70 years old at this point in time. So this, again, is is a little bit of a uh, back-in-time vision. And so it says, And I saw in the vision... And so it happened while I was looking that I was in Sushan, the citadel, which is in the providence of Elam. And I saw a vision, <coughs> excuse me, that I was by the river uh, Ulai. And then my eyes were lifted up and I saw and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And so it begins this strange vision. This, this picture of a, a couple of animals, a, a ram and a goat. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And so here is, is this 
kind of odd thing. If you think about an animal and you think about what's being said here, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's kind of a weird thing to see. You know, what does that have to do with God's kingdom? What does that have to do with anything that would be beneficial to the children of Israel or to the children of God who are who are now those who are in the New Testament times, the children of grace? said that the higher one came up last, and I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And I want to show you a little secret here, because all you have to do is push forward just a handful of verses to verse 20, And it says there, And the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And so it's extremely clear what's being said here. And so now all that's left to determine is is why this is here, and why is it important, and what is the Lord trying to, to give us in this vision, and what was he trying to speak to Daniel at that time. This is why I've told you so often that if you want to rightly interpret God's word, you need to read about a chapter before and a chapter after at the very least and make sure that you are keeping what you're reading in context. And here's why. If you don't do that, then there are many symbolisms and there are many types which can be repeated that are not necessarily a type that's repeated, but one may be a literal translation. And so in this case, we get a picture here of exactly what's trying to be communicated by simply reading forward a little bit. And so we have this ram that is that is in this picture. And, and to give you some background here, as this chapter switches over between Aramaic and Hebrew, it gives us this picture uh, that we're going to need to know what is the course of these world empires. It, it gives us an understanding that there are going to be some great kingdoms that are going to come upon the earth that we need to know about. And there will be a reason that we need to know about them. And, it, and if Daniel could interpret the handwriting on the wall, he already knew some of what was about to be said. So this is actually filling in some of the details and helps those who would read some of the previous chapters to actually understand that God, in his sovereign plan, helped us to understand what was previously said before. So when these events unfold, there will be no mistaking what God's talking about. Very, very, very important. And so God, in essence, repeats himself and fills in some details here in this chapter begins about the the rulers of the Medo-Persian Empire, because when we go to Greek, we realize that this is Media and Persia that's being talked about. So it completes that prophetic picture. And these next five chapters, as we finish the book of Daniel, are actually a description of the nation Israel, its place in history, and its place in prophecy. So in order for God to validate what he's saying, he's going to give them details about some nations that will rise up several hundred years later, 
and about what they will do and how they will do it so that when the people see the real part of this, which is the rise of Media and Persia and the rise of Greece, and then in the same several chapters in the same book, God says these other things that have not yet happened will happen, that the people reading it will recognize the whole story is true. And so God uses prophecy to validate, if you will, his word in and of itself. So as you read it, you're going, wow, that's already happened. So I have a tremendous reason to believe everything that's going to follow that has not yet happened yet, that we don't have all the final tidbits and pieces to, will also come true. And so we're going to see the rise of these countries. The bad news is, as we're going to see, Tremendous persecutions coming for the for the children of Israel. The good news is it's going to come in God's set time. Uh, the bad news is things are not going to be good. They're going to be bad at times. The good news is the one who told us it was going to be bad did so so that you don't have to go through it. Because what follows all of this is a description of the tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist, and all of these things that God has no desire for anyone who's named by his name to ever endure. And so he's going to explain these things uh, in a great sweep of history here in chapter 8. Daniel, in essence, in chapter 8, becomes kind of a time traveler. He's going to be pushed forward. He's going to be pushed back. In this case, he's actually going to see the future, and he's going to record what's going to happen there. So you have the vision of the ram and the goat. You're going to have some heavenly interpreters, and you're going to have an interpretation of that vision. If you remember the rise of Cyrus the Mede or the Persian that we've already seen when we were studying previously, uh, there, was a, there was a king that came along. His name was Nabonidus. Nabonidus was absolutely famous for his use of the ram as his symbol. Wherever he went, that was his symbol. And ultimately, uh, in that symbolism, it became part of the, of the Persian uh, Empire as well. And so it says here, uh, I, Daniel, had a vision. Notice what it says, after the one I already had. And so he makes it really clear that this is an addition, if you will, to the one that's already been there. It was done as, uh, for prophetic purposes and for historical purposes. The fortress of Susa, uh, from where Daniel is writing, is about 230 miles to the east of Babylon and about 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf. So it's somewhat south of where modern-day Babylon is and more towards modern-day Iran. And so this city is important because it's also going to come up in the book of Esther. Uh, it, it is the home of Xerxes and Arctic Xerxes, so these uh, people that we will learn more about as we study Scripture. And it's also the place from which emanated the very famous Hammurabi's Code. And so this, this code of ethical conduct uh, that preceded, if you will, the moral law that, that actually predated the time of Moses. And so this is a city that you can go back and archaeologically look at. So, so there in that area, the first Babylonian kingdom had actually seized the city of Susa, the capital of Elam, and several kings laid siege to it. And so we have, again, tremendous historical evidence that these were real people in real times that had real deeds, and they're described here in some detail uh, as we as we move forward. In fact, this canal, this river that's mentioned in Daniel's dream, the historical evidence of it outside of the ruins of the citadel, 
that still exists to this day was actually a man-made 900-foot-wide canal that was filled with water. And so when you start reading these things, it just kind of seems like, oh, Daniel had a vision. I have visions too. They generally are not, you know, quite this, you know, worldwide, but, you know, I get my visions. And so here Daniel begins in, in the third verse to say one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. And so it's a picture, if you will, of these horns are obviously symbols of power. We're told that they're kings and kingdoms. Obviously, one that's longer is more powerful than the other. And so it says there that no animal could stand against them. Well, when the Medo-Persian alliance came about, that ram symbolized both of them. The smaller horn was Media, the larger horn was Persia. Uh, it's similar to, remember the beast that we saw uh, previously that looked like a bear? It, it gives us that same picture, was raised up on one side. And so it's giving us this picture of these these parallel kingdoms, if you will, that one was more powerful than the other. Uh, it's also interesting that in uh, royal Zoroastrian uh, data that we now have that's in the London Museum, when you look at some of the horoscopes that were drafted at that time, the actual symbol that was used for that period of time was the symbol of the ram. And so, uh, again, historically we realize that these nations existed. You'll notice that there's three directions that are listed here in this particular chunk of this this chapter. And notice that it says the west and the north and the south, and that they pushed out and that no one can stop them. It's interesting that the only direction uh, that the Medes and the Persians did not go where they conquered was, guess what, to the east. And so when you when you read this, the only place that they didn't go was the east, and the only place that they they were not able to conquer was to the east, and everywhere else that they went, which was to the north and to the south, they actually conquered. They went to the west. They conquered Thrace and Macedonia, which would become Greece. They went to the north, into the Caspian Range, the Caucasus Mountains, uh, where the Scythians were. They conquered them. They went to the south. They went to Babylon, and they went to Egypt and conquered those people. And so it is perfectly historically accurate as to what this animal did that represents these two kings. And so the Medo-Persian troops under Cyrus II went and conquered all of these areas, and he was completely invincible until the time of the goat. And so that's why these things are so important. So now we pick up in verse 5. And as I was considering, remember this is in advance by several hundred years, uh, Daniel writing here in the uh, 6th century B.C., these things would come up, come about some almost 300 years later. I was considering, considering, and suddenly a male goat came up from the west. Now notice again, verse 21, we'll go up just a little bit so we get this picture, so we understand where I got this from. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. You ever wonder how Daniel knew about Greece that far in advance? Uh, because we, we know that this came from a source other than Daniel's mind. And so suddenly a male goat came from the west. Obviously that male goat, as we are ter- told, is Greece, came from, from the west. Where is from Susa, from Media Persia, from Babylon, where is Greece? It's from the west. And in fact, if you look at the conquest of the Grecian Empire, um, in essence, the, the furthest extent that it moves towards the, towards the east 
uh, from the west. It goes almost all the way to India. And so that whole area was conquered uh, by Greece. So across the surface, it says, of the whole earth. It's an interesting statement because it certainly wasn't the whole earth as we know it, round and all. It was the whole earth at the time. And so when it says the whole earth, the known world at that time existed in the Middle East. And it's widely believed at that time that there were very few people, if any, existing anywhere else in the world. So from a human standpoint, it was, in fact, the whole earth. With the touch, without notice, it says, touching the ground. It's interesting that the, the Greeks were the first army in the world, in the history of the world, to effectively use cavalry troops. And so it's, again, another picture of how uh, Greece conquered. And, in fact, Alexander the Great in his three-and-a-half-year reign of terror in that area of the world managed to conquer almost everything uh, that exists from where Greece is, modern-day Greece today, all the way to modern-day India in a matter of three-and-a-half years, and he moved with lightning speed. And so it says, without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Now, we all know that goats generally have two horns. If they have one, we call them a unicorn. They're a mythical beast. And he came to the ram that had two horns. And when I had seen, which I had seen standing beside the river. And so now these two animals have met. Get, get what's being said here. You have Greece and you have Media Persia and they are going to meet. And notice what it says. And it ran at him with furious power. It's important to keep an eye on what's being said here because it's going to play out in the course of human history. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, and he attacked the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, for there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Now remember what it says in verse 20 and 21. We know exactly who this is. This means at some point in time, there had to be a major battle between the kingdom of Media and Persia combined, which at that time would have been the greater horn, Persia, Cyrus the Great, and the Grecian kingdom, and they would meet and Greece would win. And therefore, the male goat grew very great. And so now you have greatness, which is pretty clearly the greatest king of Persia, which would have been Cyrus II or Cyrus the Great. And you would have had this very great image, which is of a goat, which we know is Greece because we're told it's Greece. But when he became strong and large, the horn was broken. And in its place, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. So when you read this out of hand, and you just look at it, you're going, man, goats and rams and horns, and what in the world is, who cares? Until you read ahead, and until you read back, and you realize, okay, we know who these guys are. So now we start looking at the rest of world history and go, okay, what was this getting at? Because when this this event actually happened was in the 6th century B.C., Greece and Media Persia. Media Persia, right at the end of the 6th century B.C., was, was strong and powerful. Greece wasn't even on the scene yet. 
So we have to be looking forward into history. And so another conqueror would be given the title great. Notice that it was given also uh, to Media Persia, which was Cyrus. He held that. He was called Cyrus the Great. Uh, the conqueror depicted here would be that prominent horn between the eyes of a male goat. Uh, this one has one. That typically means that that goat has been in battle and survived. And so, again, a huge picture of these kingdoms as they actually played out in world history. Uh, the ancient capital of Greece, uh, and, which is actually called AGA, AGA actually stands for Goat City. That's actually what it means. And so the, the kingdom of the goat, actually its capital, was called Goat City. Uh, the adjacent waters, the Aegean Sea, which we still have today, means actually Sea of the Goat. Uh, that's what it means. And so, uh, hence, now you would have a, a son that would come out of that. That son that would come out of that would be Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was birthed by Roxana, who was actually called uh, Aegis at the time. And so, Alexander the Great, guess what his name actually is in Greek? It's Son of the Goat. Not a great name for your kid, but it meets with exactly what prophecy says that there would be a kingdom that would be known, in essence, by the title of a goat. And when you think about Alexander the Great, there's a lot of things that we know about him because the Greeks were tremendous at keeping historical record. In about 356 B.C., Alexander the Great was born. He would actually die by the time he's 32 years old. So you see the picture now? He, he's raised up. He becomes very, very, very powerful for a very short period of time, and he is cut off. Alexander the Great was actually, was actually educated by the great Aristotle. That was his teacher. And his father was Philip of Macedonia. And so you have this tremendous history uh, of these characters. And in 334 B.C., Alexander the Great came from the region of Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, and he struck a fatal blow to Media Persia. Just exactly like a giant goat leaping over the point that's called, actually called Hellas Point. Hellas Point is that thin sliver of land uh, that we now see in modern Turkey called the Bosphorus. You know where that is. It's a little tiny place there, and it's extremely narrow. There is now a canal through there, and the Black Sea can, can flow out of it. He actually traveled over that so quickly that he caught the Medes and the Persians off guard in a giant battle. He brought with him about 30,000. This, again, these are the stories that we have. You can go look them up. You can just Google Alexander the Great, find out what his historical conquests were. You're going to read of this battle. He brings 30,000 troops. He brings 5,000 cavalry. Uh, and he attacks the Persian army on the banks of the Granus River. Um, the Persian army at that time numbered some 600,000 at that place. And Alexander the Great came and could not be defeated, even though he faced a far superior force. And so this is a picture of these military conquests. By, the, by 331 B.C., Alexander the Great is on the banks of the Tigris River, and he's made it all the way, in essence, to Babylon. And so in a very short period of time, uh, he would eventually die. He was between 32 and 33 years old. Uh, he actually died in his own vomit in a drunken stupor uh, there in Babylon, given some poison more than likely by one of the princes whose name was Cassander. And so here's this giant, this incredibly powerful goat that goes and attacks. Notice what they do. They meet. 
The goat can't be defeated. He attacks. This is exactly what happened in world history. And so when you read about these things, knowing the little tidbits, we can then assemble what Scripture was talking about. And we have these events to, to now look back on. Notice it says that there would be four heads that would come up out of this one man. And so now we have a little bit of a detective work to do here. So from this from this horn, this great horn, which is Alexander the Great, because we know where he comes from, we know what he's going to do, we can assemble the parts of the very battle that occurred and when it occurred. Uh, it, the four heads come up. Uh, these are the same four heads of the third beast that we saw back in chapter 7. And so now we're looking for four heads that remained uh, after Alexander the Great. Wonderfully, we know exactly who they were. They were Lamatius, Cassander, Sucleus, and Ptolemy. Those four guys were the four generals that were trained under Alexander the Great. They each took, in essence, a direction of the kingdom that was now the kingdom of Greece. One was in the east, one was in the west, one was in the north, one was in the south. Guess what scripture says? That that's exactly what would happen. Each one of those guys I would take a portion of the kingdom, and it is a wonderful confirmation. And one of the, the great things that helps us understand exactly how accurate this is, there was actually a fifth general. That fifth general was Antagonus Gonatus II, and he was supposed to take the central kingdom. The only problem was he was a lousy general. Every battle he went to, he was defeated. He was eventually murdered. And because he was murdered, he never took possession of a fifth part. So scripture says there will be four. That's exactly how many they were. It says that they would be, in essence, spread to the four winds, which is exactly what they had happen. That's what history reveals to us. And so as scripture is talking about these things, and we realize how accurate this actually is, when it gets to the prophetic portions, which we cannot yet say have happened, what we're doing is going, man, if God was that accurate there, how accurate do we think he's going to be everywhere else? And so it gives us the ability to look at the rest of Scripture and go, okay, Lord, you said it's going to happen. I'm going to trust you. You were 100% accurate on everything else. I believe you're going to be 100% accurate uh, with what remains. And so that fifth, if he had taken possession of a, of a chunk of the Grecian kingdom, then you could throw out the book of Daniel. Matter of fact, you could throw out your Bible, but he didn't. He was disposed. He was killed. And so there remained four. Each one of them took a part of the kingdom, and they were known to be specifically to the north, south, east, and west, the four winds of the earth. And so verse 9 now. And then out of one of them. So now out of one of those four remaining rulers of Greece. So one of the four could be any one of those, could have been Cassander, could have been Ptolemy, uh, but we know exactly who this guy was, too, because of history. Uh, we have specifically a very powerful part of the Grecian kingdom known as the, uh, the Seleucids, and the Seleucid rulers of Greece were actually responsible for the spread of Greek thought uh, throughout most of the known world, and so... 
Uh, Now out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south. And so we should be looking towards the south of the Grecian kingdom for the rise of an empire that comes out of one of these four that came after Alexander the Great. You see how all this works? And so as you begin to look at history, because you wouldn't have been able to tell necessarily then because it hadn't happened yet, but we can look back and go, wow. God described exactly what was going to happen with Greece itself. And so one little horn grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land, and it grew up in the host of heaven. Excuse me, it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Interesting that the children of Israel are also called the stars of heaven. And so one of the things that we need to be looking for is a ruler that grew very large, that exalted himself over the Jewish people and ultimately cast down the Jewish people. And he would have been of one of these four rulers of Greece. And there's only one guy that fits that picture, and that would be the Seleucid Empire. And so here... We get some further detail. And he even exalted himself as the prince of the host. And so he is going to mess with who we know are the Jewish people. He's going to exalt himself in their religion. He is even going to call himself a prince. So now it starts getting really narrow. By him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. It gets narrower and narrower and narrower and all written in advance of the details of these things happening. Also interesting, the timing of it. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. And an army was given over the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast the truth down to the ground and he did all this and prospered. And so out of one of them comes another horn. Uh, there's only one that fits this group, and that is this, the Seleucid rulers of Greece. Um, we also know exactly which one it was because he's described in a couple of deuterocanonical books, and those are, those are the books that are not included in the New Testament canon. Uh, they're very often included in a Catholic Bible, and this happens to be the first and second book of Maccabees, and they're actually just historical books. They fill in some of the details, but they are not necessarily inspired, and so we have quite a bit of history on this guy. His name was Antiochus IV. He's also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And so as he comes on the scene, uh, he started very small, and his power grew in the south, uh, which would have been Egypt. It grew towards the east, which would have, been a, would have been Arabia, and it grew towards the beautiful land. Oddly enough, the beautiful land was actually the land that we now know as Palestine. And so it grew towards the land of Palestine. As it grew towards the land of Palestine, guess where Jerusalem is? Guess where the temple is? It's in the beautiful land. Amen? And so as he is confirmed king, he was confirmed king in about 175 B.C. Uh, He ruled until about 164 B.C., ruling from Syrian Antioch. So you know where all that fighting's going on right now? Uh, That would be modern-day Syria. Just uh, in that region is also Syrian Antioch. And so uh, he, because he was ruling from Antioch, he got the name Antiochus. 
And so his name ultimately would become uh, Antiochus, which means opposer or withstander. Uh, he was also known as the Great One, so he was called Theos Antiochus, and which simply means Great God. So Scripture says he will actually place himself as prince over the Jewish people. Guess who that has to be? None other than the Great God. And so Antiochus Epiphanes was known as the Great God. And so as he ruled over that region of the world, he would ultimately be known by a second name to those who were his enemies, uh, and that would be Epiphanes instead of Epiphanes, uh, which would mean the insane one. And so he was uh, a crazy guy. He was a power-hungry uh, person. Uh, he was also responsible, according to the book of First Maccabees, according to Josephus in his writings of the Wars of the Jews, uh, and according to early church historians who record in these things, uh, that he was responsible for the death of somewhere between 100 and 200,000 Jewish people. And ultimately, he would be that little horn uh, from the goat. Uh, by the way, not to be confused with the other little horn, which we've already seen, which we know is the Antichrist, but then he would be a type of the real little horn, which is the Antichrist. And so what can we expect the type to do? but to be just like the one he would be the type of, which is the Antichrist, and so what will he do? We know some things about the Antichrist, that he's going to defile the temple of God, that he's going to establish himself in the temple of God and demand to be worshipped, that he is going to persecute the Jewish people, he's going to murder the Jewish people. Do you get the picture? This is a little preview of the book of Revelation. And so as he begins to expose these things, the little horn of the goat rises out of the Greek empire, while the actual real little horn rises out of the Roman empire, right? So we know these are two totally different horns, but they are going to do very similar things. The horn in chapter 7 is going to be the actually the 11th horn, rooting up three horns, is going to persecute God's people for 42 months, which is three and a half years and is actually the Antichrist. And a lot of people get these two guys confused, and they really shouldn't because there are some very major differences between what they do. Uh, this guy is the fifth horn. He's coming out of one of the four. He persecutes God's people, we're going to see, for 2,300 days, which is not three and a half years. Amen? It's a longer period of time. It's almost six, a little over six years. And so we're looking for somebody who's different uh, and actually is a historical figure. Excuse me. Okay, so he reaches the horn to the host of heaven. He throws down the starry host. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 and Jeremiah chapter 33 give a picture of the Jewish people as being the host of heaven, uh, specifically the starry host of heaven or the stars of heaven. And so how did Antiochus throw some of those faithful Jews to the ground and trample them? That's because we know his history. He was a ruthless dictator. He suppressed uh, faith in the Torah, and in fact, one of the things that he delighted himself to do was to gather as many copies of the Torah as he possibly could and burn them. And so he, he took God's word, and he decided that it would not be in existence to the Jewish people. He actually assassinated one of the high priests, and he took the high priest's place, ultimately going into the temple and declaring that he himself was God, and he slaughtered a pig on the altar of sacrifice. And so we know that this is the ruler that Daniel foretold the Jewish people would come. 
And so as the Jewish people saw him, this is why we know that God has been faithful to the Jewish people to expose to them the truth of what he's been saying prophetically about their destiny is because he took great time to say, when you see this guy who will be this horn that will rise up out of Greece, who will eventually begin to persecute you, who will ultimately go into the temple itself and demand to be worshipped, even as a Greek, then you're going to know that my word is true and the words that I've spoken to you are true. And so Antiochus sets himself up as a great priest. Uh, he demands the sacrifice. He ultimately uh, would put up a statue of Zeus in the Jewish temple, which all of these things are blasphemy. Amen? The Jewish people are going nuts. They're like, are you kidding me? Um, it, it is also interesting that because of his desire, and here's where this gets really crazy, now remember, this is in roughly 170 or so B.C. The Dead Sea Scrolls, many of them are previous to that in around 200, some of them as early as 280, most of them in about the 212 range. It's interesting to note that these scrolls, the book of Daniel, the most common copies of the book of Daniel are all in the mid-170s, 170, 160 or so. So they're give or take uh, a 10-year period that are in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if Antiochus Epiphanes is attacking the Jewish people, destroying them, demanding to be worshipped, destroying the copies of the Torah, what do you think the Jewish people are going to try and do? They're going to try and hide them. Where do they do that? They do them in the caves of Qumran, which become the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in 1947. And we have all of these copies of the book of Daniel that are roughly the same age. They're from the Maccabean period. And so the, these copies that we have now that we're, we're blessed to actually have uh, were there probably because of this very guy persecuting the Jewish people. And so, again, it just, it just takes all these little tidbits of history that we have, these archaeological finds, and goes, man, that fits perfectly the biblical narrative of when these things should have happened. And so uh, under Antiochus Epiphanes, the most holy place, the temple, uh, actually becomes the host place for the Greek games. And if you know anything about the Greek games, the Greek games were done in the nude completely. And there's an interesting thing about the Jewish people, because the Jewish people did not want to be seen as participating in Greek games. They actually would raise up Jews, men who were uncircumcised, so that they could participate in the games and look like they were Greeks. So this guy just nearly destroyed the Jewish people and their culture in a very short period of time, and so demanded that they would worship him. And so as those Dead Sea Scrolls were un uncovered, uh, as, as we have them today and we can look at them today, uh, we can look at it and go, man, that just fits perfectly with what we know about Greek history. The rise of Alexander the Great, the rise of Antiochus out of these four kings, what he would do, how he would do it, what he would demand, each one of these historical tidbits all becomes the basis for us to look at our Bibles and go, that was all written hundreds of years before it actually happened. It's amazing stuff. In verse 13, And then I heard a holy one speaking. And so now the, the shift is away from the earthly to the heavenly. And another holy one said <clears throat> to be that certain one who was speaking. 
And so he says, how long is this going to happen? How long is it going to go on? And here's yet another historical tidbit that we can actually validate. And so I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said uh, to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? What's the vision? Concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of the desolation. So we know who this was. It's Antiochus Epiphanes. We know what he did. He, he, in essence, defiled the temple, first by offering up the sacrifice of a pig on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. He, he then desecrates the temple by erecting a statue of Zeus inside of it. He causes the, the people of the Jewish people to witness the, these Grecian games for years in front of the temple. Uh, how long would that be, it says? How long would the transgression of the desolation, giving both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So it gives a very specific picture that the sanctuary of the Jewish people is going to be desecrated. It's going to be desecrated for a very specific period of time. It tells us what's going to happen there, that that. The, the host would be trampled underfoot. In other words, the, that priestly order would not be allowed to minister inside of the temple itself. And it tells us exactly, he said to me, for 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And so here to wrap all this up, because I know this is all historical stuff and it's hard to keep track of. You can get the CD. You can listen to it online. Three times. Maybe even four. Don recommends three. And so we, we know something about holy ones. We know they're angels. Amen? So who's speaking these things? There's a couple of angels. And these angels have come from heaven, and they have a very specific message. Uh, this, this mystery is so important that it's handed off to angels, and it's given to the saints through the angels. How long will it take for this whole thing to be fulfilled? The answer is directed at Daniel himself. Remember, he has a vision, he's seeing these things, and he said to me, it's going to take 2,300 evenings and mornings. And before you try and make this fit, the Antichrist, by chopping it in half, understand that that is exactly how God described a day in Genesis chapter 1. He said the morning and the evening on the first day. So it means a literal day. The Hebrew word used here is yom, which always is translated a solar day. And so there are going to be 2,300 evenings and mornings. In other words, 2,300 days, and it'll be reconsecrated. And, and so we need to look back at history and find out. Uh, in the book of First Maccabees, in the fourth chapter, the 52nd verse, going to about 50, the 59th verse, you can find there a chronology of what happened during that period of time, recorded at that period of time. These are historical writings that were... written down by scribes, and it's interesting that it is mentioned the exact date of when the consecration occurred. The exact date was the month of Kislev, which is December, the 25th, and the 165 B.C. Real interesting fact now. You count back 2,300 days, and guess what you come up with? You come up with uh, September 6th, 171 B.C., 
And that is exactly the time when Antiochus defiled the temple because the person that he assassinated, Onias III, uh, was assassinated by Antiochus, and that also is recorded, and his first act was to go into the temple and desecrate it. So your Bible says, and is confirmed by secular history, that the desecration of the temple of this one horn that would come from these four horns that sprung up out of the Greek empire that would come from Alexander the Great, would eventually produce a ruler who would suppress the Jewish people, demand to be worshipped, defile the temple itself, and then the exact time frame of how long that defilement would occur is given to us of 2,300 days. And when we look back at, at history, in essence secular history, not just biblical history, but secular history, we, we see this exact event the restoration of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, which occurred uh, there on December 25th of 165 B.C., and then we find out that it was just exactly 2,300 days earlier that actually Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the sanctuary. And so your Bible is very accurate. Your Bible contains a lot of historical information, and it's there so that you'll understand that your Bible is from God. It wasn't written by the hands of man. By mid-September of 171 B.C., Lysmatius, the brother of that uh, corrupt high priest that allowed, in essence, Antiochus to do these things, uh, desecrated the temple once again. So you have a very narrow window of exactly 2,300 days that the temple was desecrated and then cleansed and then desecrated again. It's like God said, here's one point, here's the other point, and just so you don't miss it, I'm actually going to desecrate it again because it's the only window of 2,300 days that the temple remained defiled until it was actually torn down and, and ruined by Titus when he sacked it in AD 70. The Bible's pretty amazing, amen? Next week we'll get the rest of the chapter. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. And Lord, we thank you for the accuracy of Scripture. And so, Lord, as we read it, may we, may we not just look at it as a, as a book of suggestions, Lord, or philosophy. Lord, but rather the truth of the living God who desires for us to know you. And, and so we pray, Lord, that you'd speak these truths into our lives in a very special way. Help us to be bold about our faith, Lord. When people question whether the Bible is true, whether the Bible is real, Lord, help us to remember some of these details. Help us to be able to be those Bereans who can rightly divide the word of truth. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you even for the history lessons that are found. We thank you that you took care to preserve these ancient documents and and stored them away so that we might have them to validate these facts these things that you foretold hundreds of years before they occurred. And so, God, we bless you, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We ask all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. Trust the word.